Please stand as you're able for the reading of the word. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jack. Again, happy Easter. Good to see all of you. While these guys are setting uh, this up for me, just quickly, um, the men's retreat, we're like two weeks away from that and just wanted to say a couple things about it. Um, again, Keith Roy is going to be speaking. If I could list a lot of famous authors who have written things for men, John Eldridge being one of them. Keith has worked with men for years. He's worked with those guys, um, and I'm excited that he gets to come. He's going to be talking about the seven lies that men believe. Just there are some details that I haven't, I'm not that we're hiding them, but we're going to be planning on leaving at 4 o'clock on that Friday. Um, we will probably have a group leaving a little later at 5 or something if people can't get off by then. Don't need to bring blankets or sheets or anything. It's just bring your toiletries, bring a Bible, bring a pen and paper. And we're really excited um, about that weekend. So really encourage the men to sign up for that and encourage the women to encourage the men to sign up for that. So we can, again, we gather this morning. Thank you guys for helping um, to celebrate Jesus, his resurrection from the dead, and a life-changing event as we're going to talk about um, but I still, I had a question as I was even thinking about this this morning, because this is something I would have asked a long time ago before I knew anything about any of this. And the question is, this is like, what does Easter really have to do with real life? And in fact, what does Jesus, frankly, have to do um, with real life? And today, I want to tell you what Easter and Jesus have to say about real life, because they actually say a lot. Um, just a few days ago, um, met with Lisa in her office and learned that a dear friend that we both have um, was diagnosed with stage four colon and liver cancer. She just found out last Monday, 38 years old, 38 years old, two small children married. Um, she went to school at Emporia State University, got involved in um, Christian Challenge while she was here. Her husband came here and they met. And a number of us here got to know them, just dear, dear people. She is such, was and is such a bright light, very creative, has these amazing artistic gifts, um, full of spunk and life, and really so full of Jesus. Um, her and her husband work on a campus ministry at the University of Arkansas. They've been there for several years after they'd been at K-State up in Manhattan um, for about six or seven years before that. And as I heard the news that week, and, and this, this week, and you know, took that initial gut punch of somebody you care about. So young, having stage four cancer that's already spread by the time they found it, I thought, what would I say to her and her family on Easter? What would I say? And as I've thought about that, I thought, what would I say to any of us on Easter? So after having worked on something Tuesday, um, this morning's sermon changed that day for me. You know, we're all going to die one day. It's inevitable. It's as inevitable as taxes. That's what Benjamin Franklin says. I talked to somebody before first service, and I said, what are you doing for Easter? And they said, we're having the Eastern dinner at lunch, and then I'm working on taxes this afternoon. Because they are due tomorrow. I saw a few bug eyes kind of suddenly. They are due tomorrow. So, um, But we're all going to die. We are all going to lose significant people in our lives to death. At some point, probably more than one. I think a number, I know a number of us have already lost very significant loved ones. And so what does Easter say about this? 
what does it speak to that reality of death? And I want to tell you, it, it says everything about those things. And this morning, I want to give you four words that I want you to go home with, four words that relate to Easter, um, that I want you to really take away that speak to this. And the first word, the first word is this. It's the word should. The word should. I think we all have a deep sense in our heart of how things should be, right? How things should be. All children should be loved and kept safe. All people should have sufficient provision. Every human being should be treated with love and dignity. We all should be able to live in a place where we're safe and protected and we don't have the threat of war. I think we all have a deep feeling that we all should be disease-free and people should be cancer-free. Do you not feel that should in your gut? I know I do. I also think a lot of us have a sense of how I should be on the inside. I should be more loving. I should be more kind. I should be more patient. I should be more forgiving to people, more accepting. I think we all have a sense of that should. And I know as humans, we all have longings for the should, for the should be's. But though we long for those things, the truth is, is we never experience the shoulds to the fullness that we think they should be in our life. And we face this stark reality, and that's the second word. And the stark reality of life um, is though we ache with a lot of shoulds that we don't see happen in life, um, the truth is, is we are right now living in the midst of is. That's the second word. We live in the isness of life. All the ways that life is that it really shouldn't be. Um, a young couple in our church last fall um, had a young child who was going to be delivered on a Monday. They were set to have the delivery, and they lost the child in stillbirth on Thanksgiving morning. Can you imagine that? And as we worked with them and talked with them and we were planning the memorial service, there was one day we met in particular to kind of line out the final um, things of what it would look like. And they were talking to me about the day before. They had finally gotten her ashes back. They had had her cremated and put in the urn. And before they, um, I don't remember what they ended up doing with them, but before they did, they wanted to bring her home where she belonged for a few days. Right? Take her to the room they had prepared. And she said that when they came up to the door with the urn and the ashes, they stopped at the threshold, opened the door, but they couldn't cross at first. And one of them, I don't remember who, looked at the other and said, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be that this way. Don't you feel that in so much of life, that it shouldn't be this way? I think there's a lot of shouldn't be's that we all live. Um, you know, if they're the Oakland Raiders, that shouldn't be. That's supposed to be funny, by the way. Now the Los Angeles, Las Vegas, not Los Angeles, Las Vegas Raiders. But seriously, there's the war in Ukraine. Um, there is famine. There are floods and tornadoes and tsunamis and hurricanes. There's COVID, the great shouldn't be. There's my friend who has stage four cancer. And I think there's these internal shouldn't be's that we all feel, right? I shouldn't be so afraid. I shouldn't have so much anxiety. I shouldn't be so judgmental with people. I shouldn't be so unkind. I shouldn't be jealous like that. I shouldn't be so self-centered. Um, I think deep in our gut, we know there's a lot of shouldn't be here, but the reality is every day is we just live with a lot of is. Because that's what life is, right? It's just, it's the is of life. And here's what's kind of sad, is a lot of people live their whole life with only those two words. Only the should and the is. And I know that because that was me. And if you go to 12 here, you know my story. I grew up with no faith, knew nothing about God. And all I knew about life is there were a lot of shoulds, should-be's that weren't. And I knew the is of how life really was. But I had no sense that there was anything larger than the life that is. None at all. I had really no hope. You know, I wanted to live a good life. I wanted to live a long life. But I really had no long-term hope that, it, that there was something more than the is. I had no sense of that at all. Um, and not only that, I had no sense of what lay beyond death. I had no hope of that. I didn't know if what, what would be on the other side. And so really for me, though I tried to be a good person, 
the should and the is, sometimes is overwhelming. And so um, to where you can ask the question, is there really any hope? Not fake made up hope, right? We can, anybody can talk themselves into fake hope, but like real hope. Is there any real hope? And I want you to know this morning that there is. And that's where the story of God comes in. And so we're going to talk about his story this morning. And when I say God's story, here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean by, a, by story. I don't mean a myth or something that's not true. I mean God's story in this way. If God and I went and had coffee and sat down, he might say to me, Garen, tell me your story. And I would start at the beginning and I would tell him my story. And then if I said, God, would you tell me your story? That this is what he would say. I didn't know growing up, I didn't know the Bible at all, but the Bible is actually the whole story of God beginning to end. And it's, uh, as we finish today, it is a powerful, it's an amazing story. Um, it tells us where the should and the is come from, but it also gives us two more words that are the words that are central to the hope, the real life hope that the gospel brings. So let me start with the should, if you don't mind. The Bible says that that should that we feel is actually a faint memory of a reality that once existed, that God at one time, he did create the universe, and when he created it, it was for good, and it was exactly as he intended it to be, that he was in perfect relationship with a man and woman. They lived in relationship with him under his reign. They were in perfect relationship with themselves. They were rightly related to creation. Creation was a safe place for them, that this was a place where everything was exactly as he intended that everything worked as it should, and it was a place that was full of his shalom, that this was paradise. And that sense in all of us, that sense of should is actually anchored in history, in something that existed. And that's really what Genesis 1 and 2 are about, how God created for good. But then Genesis 3 comes, uh, the is. We're told that that the man and woman ended up rejecting a relationship with God, rejected his reign over his life, basically said, you know, out of here, we're going to run things the way we want to. And that in breaking that relationship with God, they broke everything. The whole creation fell um, under ruin and corruption. Immediately after they broke that relationship, the man and woman began arguing with each other. Their relationship was fractured. Um, creation no longer became a safe place for them. They no longer took care of it. And so that the is that we have is because of, of their sin and breaking, breaking relationship with God. And the scripture is clear. It didn't just make humans and them broken. That that thing, it went through all of creation. It reverberated through all of creation to where Romans 8 says that the whole creation now is broken. And it is, it's corrupted. And it's, um, everything has been brought to ruin. That here, because of their sin, paradise was lost. That everything God created was broken by sin. And that is the is, that's why we're in the is that we find ourselves in. Now, God, when this happened and what he created became ruined, he could have trashed the whole thing, started over again or said, I'm just done with that, which is what I would have done. I mean, I know because when I was a kid growing up and every Saturday, my dad and my brothers, we'd build Lego stuff together. And inevitably, I'd build a cool Lego jet or a battleship or something, and my younger brother would break something off of it. And my response to that was always like, and I'd tear the whole thing apart. And then that, that was my response. And that could have been God's response to this, was just to tear the whole thing up and throw it away. But that's not what he did. God determined that he was going to win this thing back and he was going to make it, take it back to the place that he intended it, that he was not going to leave this alone, that he would bring that flourishing and shalom, shalom back into his creation. So God went on a mission on that day, on a mission to, to fix the whole thing. And here's some scripture that talk about it. In Colossians 1, Paul says that God's mission is to reconcile all things to himself. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 18 when he talked about that eventually God would renew all things. Peter in Acts 3 says that God would restore everything. And at the end of the, the Bible in the book of Revelation where God says, I am making everything new. And so I want you to know that God went on a mission and his mission was to get his creation back to how he intended it to back to how he designed it, restoring all things in creation. And the centerpiece really being restoring broken humans back into relationship with himself. That's the center of it all. And so here's what the story tells us for the, the next word that we'll go to in a minute. That God personally entered into our world of isness. He came into it and he experienced the is that all of us experience all the time. He was born into deep poverty. 
um, on, on, the, on the margins of his own culture and society. He was born in a country that was like a backwater in that part of the world that actually had been invaded by and was controlled and under the rule, the oppressive rule of another empire. Does that sound familiar? It's like being born in Ukraine, that he came into that kind of world. And Jesus fully experienced the is that, as deeply as we do. His father died when he was a young man. He was rejected by his own family. Both the religious and the governmental powers came full force against him in the prime of his life to snuff him out. He was betrayed by a close confidant. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was put on a farce of a show trial. He was convicted. He was beaten. He was humiliated. And he was put to death on a cross. The worst form of execution, historians say, that's ever been devised. Crucifixion on a cross. Excruciating death. You know that word excruciate? It is Latin, and it comes from two words, ex cruciate, which is ex the cross on a cross. So our word excruciate comes from that. So he died an excruciating death. But we're told that as a young man that he was actually giving his life in the prime. He was giving his life for us to bring us back to himself. Um, and here's some scripture related to that. First Peter 2.24 says, He personally carried our sins, personally carried my sins in his body on the cross. Isaiah 53.5, He was wounded for the wrong things we did, for the wrong things I did. He was crushed for the evil things I did. The punishment that made we, me well was given to him. And I am healed. We are healed by his wounds. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, Though he was without sin, for our sake he became a sin offering so that through him we might be made right with God. But I want to tell you, that's not all. It gets better. And this is where we get our third word. With Jesus can or can be entered our world. And here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. That all of those shoulds that we fill in our gut, the should be's, that we don't see in reality because of the isness of the world, all of those should be's in Jesus, we see that they are actually can be. That in him, we see that they can be. Because Jesus came into this world not just to rescue, rescued by God, to rescue us and bring us back to himself. We're told, um, Scripture says that we all, like sheep, have wandered away and we're lost. And Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. So he came as the rescuer to not just win me back, but he came as a rescuer to restore all of creation and to bring everything back to how he originally intended it. And everywhere Jesus went, here is the can. All these shoulds that we wish were true, everywhere he went, he trampled darkness under his feet. Everywhere he went, he spread love, life, and liberation. He showed us that the should that we feel in our heart can be. He calmed the waves of storms. He multiplied bread. He healed the blind. He cast demons out of people. He showed respect to women in a culture where there was no respect for women. He set the oppressed free. On at least three occasions, he raised somebody who was dead to life. So all of the shoulds that we feel in our gut, Jesus comes and showed in his life that those things can be, that they can be. And then after laying his life down on the cross, he rose again the third day, victorious over death. And I want you to know that in rising from the dead, he showed us that his death on the cross for my sin, that it was enough, that it satisfied God, that he was vindicated, that I can have forgiveness of sins through that. That in rising from the dead on the third day, he was showing that he is victorious over evil and over brokenness, and that evil will not have the final word. We'll get to that in a minute. Evil will not have the final word, but he will. And he also showed in his resurrection, the thing that I always wondered about, that there is life after death. That there is death, but there is life after death. And maybe more importantly, when he rose from the death, he rose to conquer what Bi the Bible calls the last enemy, which is death itself. Um, before I get to Hebrews 2, Charles, um, let me just talk personally here as if I don't ever do that, but... When, you know, I grew up with no faith, and when I was a teenager, my cousin, who was 18, died, totally unexpected. We went down to Texas to the funeral. I had never faced death in my life. I had never seen death. Went down and went to the viewing, went to the mortuary, and we were in the lobby, and it was time to go in the room where his body was, and my family went in, but I stayed outside, and I wouldn't go inside. 
And my dad came out and he said, what are you doing? We need to go in. And I said, I'm not going in there. And we had multiple conversations, but I always want to do what's right. And he said, the right thing is we need to support the family. So come in. So I went in and I walked up. And when we went up to the casket, I did a quick glance and I was done and I walked away. And the reason I did that is for the first time in my life, his death and seeing his dead body brought to, 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 to light to me that I was living terrified of death. I was afraid of it because I had no clue when I died, what would happen? Is there a place to go after? Is there not? If there is somewhere, if there is an afterlife, is there somebody there that's waiting for you? Is it God? What's he like? You know, does he give you an exam or a test? Are there questions, multiple choice, true and false? I had no clue. And I thought, what a waste. I mean, the most important thing I should know is, is what is, I've got to be ready for that. And so that, that, that fear of death and seeing that kind of propelled me on a spiritual journey. But here's what Hebrews says about Christ dying to take care of death. It says that only as a human being could Jesus die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. He died to set people free from the fear of death and from that terrifying slave enslaving fear, which I had. And I want to tell you, coming to him, he did take that away. And the story will tell you why that is so true for me. So I want you to know that in Jesus, we have the great can be. All that we long for and hope for that we don't see, that Jesus showed us, it all can be. And I want you to know he demonstrated this in history in history, the fact that the shalom of paradise can once again break into this world. There's one more word. Jesus rose again for one other purpose. He rose to death to show that one day new creation would come. New creation, and that's the fourth word. The fourth word is will or will be. That one day he will come back as king, and when he comes back, that he will recreate all of this creation. He will take it all and he will, he will bring it back to its original design, full of shalom, full of all the things he originally intended in that creation. That he's going to bring it all back. That paradise will be regained. In the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, I've got to bring him in on Easter, who said everything sad will come untrue at that time. Is that not powerful? That everything sad will come untrue. At that time. Now we're told that when Jesus comes back, he will raise everybody from the dead. And I've got to be honest, there will be judgment. We will stand before our creator. And those who have accepted, who've accepted his free offer of life and forgiveness through Jesus, those people will get to live forever with him on this new creation. We're told ruling and reigning with him in intimate relationship with him. And on that creation, when we're raised, we will have new bodies, bodies that will never wither, bodies that will never die. Let me show you a few things the Bible says about the great will of new creation. In Revelation 21, 4, it says this, that Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That in new creation in Isaiah 25, 7, 8, the Lord Almighty will prepare a, rich, a feast of rich food for all peoples. And he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever, forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 55, in that great will, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death? is your sting. He will fully and finally defeat death once and for all. Several years ago, our dear friend Tim Wright, uh, who was part of this family, got brain cancer and ended up dying from that. And in, he and I would have intimate moments on his front porch. I'd go over in the morning, sometimes we'd have coffee. He would share what he was thinking and feeling at that time. Um, was really struggling. He lost vision in one eye, was losing his ability to walk. He and I had to, we couldn't play racquetball anymore. There were just so many things that he had lost. And I would always ask him when I left, like, what's the main thing I can pray for you? And frequently he would say this. He said, I just simply want my life restored. The life that I had, I want it back. 
And as he and I talked about the story of God, because he knew this and he was committed to it, and as we talked about the is, he knew that likely that restoration wouldn't happen in his life. He knew that that was not likely. It could be, because in Jesus anything can be. But he knew it wasn't likely. And he was convinced and he knew that there would be one day when the great will happen when he would be fully restored was the person that we all knew and loved, that healthy Tim Wright. Uh, how many of you knew Tim? You know, he was such an infectious person, but all through that cancer, what would have leveled most people over, knocked him out, Tim carried still this, this, this wonderful, in the pain of it, this wonderful joy and this wonderful hope, and his hope really was in the can-be of Jesus and the will-be of new creation. And he lived that out so powerfully in front of so many people, including me. You know, one day if Jesus doesn't return soon, everybody in here, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. But if you know Jesus, the promise of Scripture is that one day we will live again. We will live again. In the words from one of the Gospels, Jesus one day will say to us who know him, he will say, Talitha kum, which was Aram Aramaic, which meant, my beloved, rise. And we will rise to new life and we'll have our body back again. And we and Tim Wright, once again, will be able to run and to play and to do all the things that we love and to see the people who also know Jesus who are there to enjoy life again, fully restored. And some of us this morning have lost loved ones who knew Jesus, who had come into relationship with him. And I want to tell you that even though they have passed and their soul is with God in heaven, that one day they will be raised to life. And if you know Jesus and they know Jesus, you will be able to once again to embrace them, to have an eternal long eternity, to get to know them and to, to enjoy that relationship. But most importantly, we will live forever with, the, with God at the center of our lives in the intimate communion that we are designed for. The thing that I talked a couple of weeks ago that ultimately we long for is a connection with God. And that's why nothing else ever fills us up. So we will forever be with God and have that ultimate longing filled in all of us. Uh, I'm telling you, I long for that future will be. Do you not long for that future will be? So where do we fit in right now as believers? Um, there are some of us who have seen and heard the story of Jesus and we're compelled by it, we're drawn to him. And we're like, I want that relationship with you and I want to live underneath your reign. And so we give our life and we accept him and we receive his forgiveness in a restored relationship. And he, he sends his Holy Spirit to live in us and to begin to put inside of us some of the shalom that was lost at, um, at, at the fall. And then he's creating a community of people who love him and who follow him. And and community of people that are to be filled more and more with his shalom. And then this community, here's, what, here's what's really cool, is we live still in the is, but we live right now between the can and the will. And I want to tell you, I know personally, it is so different just living in is and living in the is when I know the can and I know the will be. And so Jesus calls us to be on mission with him, his goal of restoring all things. And so he calls every one of us to, be, to join him on mission seeking the restoration of all things with him, just one person, one place at a time. And so we are sent as his people to bring healing into his creation, sent to heal. In the spheres of influence where we are, we are people who try to bring the wholeness and the shalom of God back into those places. So that's where we're living right now. And we live and we serve with hope, always with hope, Jesus' hope, hope that's grounded in four words, should, is, can, and one day will. Is that not powerful? Is that not powerful? Can I like have an amen to that kind of thing, to that story? Isn't that a good story? And this story, this is the source of our hope. This is the hope that, that anchors the soul, that anchors the soul. I love this story. Um, let me just say something about the story. Uh, if you don't mind, Pat and I were watching the other day, pulled out Wizard of Oz and we're watching that, and then there was a documentary thing attached to it about the making of it. Do you know it's the most quoted movie in history? Um, yeah, see, you've got the, the James family, big fans, most quoted. 
And not only that, but a lot of directors consider it so well put together that they frequently copy a lot of things out of it. And there was, um, among those things, they're interviewing directors, and Steven Spielberg said he considered it the greatest movie. And he said that all great stories do what The Wizard of Oz did. All great stories. He said every great story, it begins and it ends at the same place. Dorothy starts in Kansas and ends in Kansas. Just the other night, I pulled up Steven Spielberg's, just had a little bit of extra time, Saving Private Ryan. It begins and it ends in the same place. J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, it begins in the Shire, it ends in the Shire. And here's why I'm telling you that, because to me, all, he said all great stories do that. And this is the one great, the greatest story. And here's why I say that. Because I'm sure there are some people this morning who like look at this and you're like, you know what? I wish this were true, but I'm not convinced that this is true. And there might even be somebody here this morning who um, got drugged here by a family member or something. Um, I have been in that place a long time ago, at least once, where I got drugged into a church and I had no desire to be there. So there might be somebody this morning who says, you know what, that to me just sounds like a myth or a fairy tale. And I want you to know, I was there at one point in my time. And when I began my spiritual journey and was really wanting to, to find out uh, the truth about the universe, I was uninterested in fairy tales and myths. I was uninterested. I was uninterested in religion. In my search, I was only looking for one thing. I wanted to know what was reality. That's all that mattered to me is what is reality. I wanted to know the truth. And here's what I found in that search. And it all comes back to Jesus. And it all comes back to Easter and the resurrection. Because for me, the veracity, the truthfulness of this whole thing, it is founded on the life of Jesus and the historicity of his life, and it's also founded on the resurrection. And that question, did the resurrection happen in history? Because if that happened in history, it, it says so much about this story, right? Let me show you. When Jesus lived, here's what he said. He said that the key piece of evidence for everything he did and everything he said, that, the re, that it was all real, was his resurrection from the jet, dead. In John 2, 18-21, says the Jews responded to him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Show us a sign. Prove your authority. And Jesus answered them, if you destroy this temple, I will rise it, I will rise it raise it again in three days. And the temple he had spoken of was his body. In Matthew 12, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want you to prove what you say and everything you say and what you claim. And he answered, None will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And though many of them didn't believe him, they remembered. They remembered. So in Matthew 27, after he had died, we're told that the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate and he said, Sir, we remember, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. I want you to know, whether this is true or not, it all turns on the person of Jesus. And specifically, if this is true, it all hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. This whole story, it stands or falls on that one event. Did that happen in history? It all stands or falls on that. That's why Paul, I mean, he totally agreed. And that's why he said that if the resurrection were untrue, the whole story collapsed. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, 17, he said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, I think that's supposed to be there, then your faith is useless and it's futile. But if he did rise from the dead in history, that means we don't just live with the is and all of the should be's, but that means that the can be is real and that the, the will be is real, as, as guaranteed also. So, after much searching, I personally found that the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection was very compelling. And I want to tell you, here's why it was so compelling to me. Um, you know, I grew up a Forsyth. My father, James, uh, taught history at Fort Hayes State University. He was at one time the president of the American Historical Society, 
president of the Kansas Historical Society, for most of his life was not a believer. He loved history. He and I would, so I got a love of history from him, and he and I would talk. And if you're a historian, when you're looking to know if something happened in history, if it truly happened, what you're looking for is sources. The more the better. If you can get sources that give evidence. And when they're looking for sources, they particularly want, and they're looking for eyewitness sources, people who've seen an event. Second or third generation stories don't matter near as much as an eyewitness source. And here's what's really interesting. If you go back to the time of Jesus, to antiquity, to ancient history, to Rome, to Greece, to Persia, to Egypt, to all of that, when you're looking at ancient history, you never find a source for anything that's happened in history that is eyewitness. Never. Never. The documents you find that talk about something having happened in history are usually written hundreds of years later after the event. Take Alexander the Great, for instance. He lived his life, and the first written document we have of what he did 300 years after he lived. This is common in antiquity. You never have eyewitness sources to events that happen, but they can determine if something is historical. But I want you to know that this is not true with Jesus, that he's the only ancient historical source that this is totally different. And I think by reason that God was putting his fingerprint into history so we could know the truth of this. Because with Jesus, we have not just one, not just four or five. We have multiple sources from the time that he lived that are contemporary to him that talk about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Last count, I saw 27 sources, most of them not even written by Christian people. But four of those would be the Gospels. And I talked about this about a year ago, but Gospels that I, can, I think can very well be demonstrated are historical eyewitness accounts of people who saw everything that he did. And those four Gospels were not only written by eyewitnesses, they were written and they were promulgated and spread around Israel and around the whole Mediterranean world during the generation when those who lived and knew Jesus were still alive so that if those things weren't true, people could easily stand up and say, that's not true, I lived in, in Nain, there was never a dead boy raised from the dead, Right? But that also means people in Nain, a very small village, could stand up and say, I was there, I was at the funeral, I saw it. And that's significant, that the Gospels are these, these first-generation eyewitness documents. But there's another piece of eyewitness historical evidence for you for the resurrection that was written and proclaimed very early, even earlier than the Gospels. And I want to, it too came from eyewitness testimony, and I want to share this with you. It's found in 1 Corinthians 5, 15. Verses 3 to 7. Jack read this for us. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Caiaphas. That's Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. He is quoting this about 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in this particular book in Corinthians. Then he appeared to James, who was his brother, and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So here's what this tells us. Not only was the tomb found empty, but more importantly, there were multiple accounts of people, eyewitnesses, who said the risen Jesus appeared to me. And not just his followers, People who were against him, um, who, didn't, who had rejected him, his brothers, for example. And not only people who had rejected him, but his adversaries, that he actually appeared to people who were his adversaries. Paul, who was being one of those people. And it wasn't just one person who has an appearance and account. Because sometimes people can think weird things, right? But he appeared to whole groups. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to apostles. But most amazingly, he appeared to 500, 500 people all at one time. And I want to tell you, for many scholars related to the resurrection historians, this text is the single most important text in the whole New Testament as evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to tell you briefly why. Um, I had the privilege of doing my master's degree in seminary. And while I was there, the Habermas brothers were there. In fact, they're still teaching there. Uh, Ron and Gary. Gary, to this day, is considered the number one expert on the resurrection and the historical evidence in the whole world. If you've seen the movie The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel went and talked to Gary Habermas. 
Um, and I was really influenced by him. And I, you have to write a major research paper on a particular topic, and this was the text that I chose to write on. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. I could. But here's something that's really interesting um, that a lot of people don't know. It's in study Bibles. If you look at them, they'll mention it. But this thing right here that Paul is doing, he's actually quoting a creed, a creedal statement that was written by the early church. Do you see when it says, what I received, I passed on? Those words in the Greek are very technical words in rabbinic literature for taking a creedal statement and how you take it and you receive it and you pass it on. So Paul is not the one who wrote this. He's saying, this is the creed I was giving from the very beginning. And I don't want to go into all the details. Maybe in the future I could show you in the book of Acts and the book of Galatians and show you where he first got this because he got this creed from Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem. And here's what's really fascinating about this because the Gospels are maybe written 20, 30 years after Jesus. Eyewitness accounts still. But this creed, Paul got this creed within five or six years after the death, burial, and resurrection when he was a new believer. And that creed was in existence before that to where most scholars agree, even liberal scholars, even the famous Professor Ehrman from North Carolina, all agreed that this creed, this statement, was formulated and it was circulating in Jerusalem within three years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Within three years, this was circulating in Jerusalem. James Dunn, probably the greatest New Testament scholar on these things, he believes it was composed and proclaimed within one year of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, here's why that's really important, in case you're thinking, why is that so important? Because eyewitness testimony is what a historian is looking for. And I want you to know this creed was formulated and it was publicly proclaimed in Jerusalem a very, very, very short time after the events of when it happened. And it's all about appearances, right? That's the emphasis of it. And those people who said they had those appearances, they were all living at that time and most of them were still in Jerusalem. And all you had to do, this was being proclaimed publicly, from the early days, all you had to do was go up and say, I heard he appeared to 500, and the word is, is that you're one of them. Is that true? And you would simply say, I was in the 500. And who else was there? Well, standing next to me was so-and-so and so-and-so, and you can go ask those people. And so this thing was being spread, this statement, within the, just within a year or two after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, in a very hostile environment where the religious leaders and the Romans wanted to crush this movement. And here's what's so interesting to me, historically, is they never denied the reality of that statement. They never denied it. The Jews, the Pharisees, the Romans never denied it. But what they tried to do was to kill the Christians and to crush, to crush that movement because they couldn't deny it because the evidence was too strong. So I want you to know the gospel accounts, and especially the resurrection accounts, they are not myths, that they are not stories that have been made up. If you watch PBS, any documentary on Jesus, they'll almost always inevitably have scholars in there who will say, oh yeah, the miracle, claim, the miracle stories of Jesus and the resurrection story, those got made up like three, four centuries later, generations from the event, because when you make up a myth, the people that are living then don't know if that's true. But I want you to know that, that none of that is true, that the reality is is the Gospels and that creed were going on from the very beginning, that the resurrection of Jesus, it was publicly known, it was publicly proclaimed from the very first days in the city to where it happened with hundreds of eyewitnesses who were present in that city and who could attest to the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why Acts 6-7 tells us that even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith because they could not overlook the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead in history. And it was because of evidence like that that I bowed the knee and I gave my life to Jesus because that convinced me of everything he said because Jesus is the person on whom all of this turns. His resurrection is on, all of it hangs on his resurrection this whole story, it rises or it falls on the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you to know, in history, that Jesus rose from the dead. And that means that I don't just live in the is and all the should be's, but that in Jesus there was the can be and one day that there will be the will be. I'm sure there are some people here this morning who 
maybe find yourself like I was many years ago, like hungry for more, wanting a larger story to live in, that really all you have is the should and is of life, and you really don't have a sense that it can be and will be one day, that the shoulds will come back to be true. Um, if that's you, I've got a, something for you. On the back, on the way out, there is, this is the eyewitness account of Mark, of Jesus' life, the Gospel of Mark. And attached to it is a little thing called the story. And it, will go, it goes over this story, and there's an amazing video that's tied to this that you can watch. And this will talk to you more about the story and about Jesus. Because that's where I'm wanting to point you to today is to him. And I'm sure there are people here today who, like me, I needed evidence before I was going to give my life to this. And you're asking the question about that. And maybe you got intrigued a little bit this morning. If so, I have a booklet for you on the, in the back, also on the way out. It's called The Case for Easter, written by Lee Strobel, who was an atheist, um, who ended up, because, became convinced the resurrection was true historically, and he gave his life to Christ. He even made a movie about this guy. So I invite you to grab one of those on the way out. I do have one request, though. For those of us that are, I said this first service, and it kind of sounded whack, but for those of us here that are normal, by normal I mean normally attend here, do me a favor on the way out, even if you're interested in one of these, don't grab one because we don't have a lot, and we want these for the people that are here who are like, I want to know more about his story, I want to read more about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. If you are really hungry for one of these, come talk to me, let me know, and I'll get you one later. But let's, uh, let's let the people who, who maybe have questions about this. We have some people who are in here um, this very hour who are on a journey to Jesus, who are seeking, who are asking questions. So um, if you're here and you've been in this church for a while, you know, feel free to grab one of these on the way out. So, all right, worship team, I want to invite all of you out. Here's, here's all I want to say is when we gather on Easter... This has everything to do with real life because his resurrection is the thing that convinced me that this whole story is true. And I've, I've given my life to it. And I live my life now not just in the is and the should, but I live my life in the can be of Jesus and in the will be of new creation that's coming. And that's good news. So would you stand with us? We want to, uh, we want to end with some worship of our risen Lord. I don't know about you this morning, but that just like fills my heart with so much joy. And the psalmist, I think, said it well. And I'll just share with you from Psalm 71. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you. I whom you have delivered. Let's sing his praises this morning. Okay. 
over into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. that right can we say amen yeah he is risen that's right 
I was wondering if somebody would do that. And the four words of God's story that are so important are what? Should, is, can, and will. Because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's how I know that. Hey, if you're here and you're even like, man, I'm close to that point of, of accepting Jesus. I've been feeling his tug and you want to talk to somebody Feel free to call, come by, even come up this morning. I had a conversation with somebody after first service. So I'd love to, to have that. I'll be up here. Um, grab some stuff on the way out. Let me pray. Father, thank you for, wow, for your story. It is so powerful. It rings so true to my heart and to the, to the reality of what every good story is. But yours is the one true story. And I know that because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So thank you. Jesus, for your death on the cross for my sin, to take away my sin and my shame, my guilt, my regret, you took all that to the cross to bring me back to yourself, and you rose from the dead as that promise and that guarantee that you are the one who can make everything right again, and that one day you will, and that you will bring us who know you into that place forever and ever and ever, and I long for that day. And we pray this in the name of, in your name, Jesus, the resurrected Lord, amen. Twelfth, as you go, there are so many people who only live in the should and is. That's all they know. But we live in the is, but we hold the can be and will be. So let us live as people of hope in Emporia because so many people so desperately need him. So twelfth, you are sent.